President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on Sirius XM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Bradley Crom, Associate Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm here in the studio since both of your hosts are on the road today. And uh, joining me via phone is Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree, and Warden Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note that Jeremy and I are registered representatives of funds of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not a recommendation for any trading strategy nor tied to an offer or sale of any investment product. The views of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. So this week, while markets have received a slew of economic data, including retail sales, minutes from the July Fed meeting, along with this morning's University of Michigan consumer confidence numbers, uh, the market seems to be grappling with the ongoing threat of terrorism after another horrific attack in Barcelona, as well as some troubling comments from President Trump, uh, and, and largely markets are questioning his view of the world. Um, before I jump in and introduce today's guests, I'd like to welcome Professor Siegel to the program and, and get his thoughts on maybe how markets are, are digesting this latest cycle of news or, or really where he sees markets going forward. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, well, everyone was complaining there was too little volatility in the market. It's uh, gotten a little bit this, uh, this week. Um, uh, you know, clearly the precipitating cause of the decline was, uh, Trump's comments, the disbandment of the uh, councils of CEOs, further pessimism uh, about uh, whether his agenda could ever be passed. Um, uh, we have gotten some very late news, a uh, report from the New York Times that um, uh, he has decided to remove Steve Bannon from his position although it might not be immediate. That did actually cause a lot of short covering in the, in the market uh, around uh, 12, 12.30 today, and actually the Dow is uh, S&P and NASDAQ are all up after the Dow is down nearly 100 points this morning. Um, you know, first let's talk about the politics. Uh, there is concern if Gary Cohn joins CEOs and says, you know, I cannot work for this president, then who would... Uh, Trump pick for the next uh, uh, head of the Fed. Uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, that issue. Uh, I mean, I, I don't, I, I personally prefer Janet Yellen uh, to Gary Cohn, um, but uh, Gary Cohn would certainly be acceptable. The worry is if he quits, will Trump veer in some direction that would not be acceptable? That's what really I think Wall Street is, is, uh, is worried about there. Um, so I do hope he stays on, and I'm sure that uh, uh, Cohn is, in fact, being besieged by people saying, hey, you know, you may not agree with the president, but uh, we, we, we need you to stay on as uh, economic advisor uh, there. And I think that he will, um, uh, especially if he fancies uh, the, uh, the Fed uh, position there. Um, I still maintain, um, although you know people say I'm more and more far-fetched, but I still maintain that there will be corporate tax reform. I often hear about tax reform, and they don't distinguish between course, co corporate and personal. Personal tax reform is going to be much harder to do because you're going to have to take away some deductions that have been sacred cows for many years. Corporate tax reform... Uh, though it's not a slam dunk, is much easier to do. The Republicans are hungry for some sort of action there. And uh, I think they're going to move forward on, on that, and uh, that basically uh, Trump will sign anything the Republicans will present him on corporate tax reform. Um, uh, so, you know, if the Republicans can get together and say, you know, we, we do need this and and work on that. I, I still think it's going to happen for this year. Um, whether it's applicable this year or next year, there may be phase in some parts depending on how far. But I don't think corp 
corporate tax reform is at all that. I still think it's odds on, believe it or not, that it will be passed this year. So that's uh, that's that that is uh, one thing. Uh, the economic news: retail sales were a, a bit firmer than expected. We had a little surprise on the um, University of uh, Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index was quite a bit higher, actually matching almost matching the highs that it reached earlier this year. Uh, you know, again, the press may be overemphasizing all this fallout. He's gone through crises like this in the past and has emerged from them. Uh, on the earnings front, uh, you know, there's been nothing bad. I mean, you know, we had a couple disappointments, obviously, and challenges still on the retail front. Foot Locker, particularly this morning, this sort of deepens it. But that, that segment is so sold down right now that it's it's a tiny fraction of S&P. Same, by the way, with energy. Um, even though oil has been holding in the high 40s, energy stocks have been disappointing. And now, what, they're 7 8% of the S&P. It really doesn't, doesn't matter much anymore. So some of these beat-down areas are so small that, you know, further erosion in them are not going to really uh, impact uh, the average uh, uh, too much. I still think uptrends are intact. Uh, August is always volatile. September, early September is volatile, and it depends, obviously, on what kind of things do happen. But uh, I I don't see anything systemic. The minutes of the Fed, you mentioned that, um, there's, they're still puzzled, but inflation is too low, and maybe they should be cautious. I don't think we're certainly not going to get a rate hike in September. The question is, will they announce a beginning of the tapering, and, and how much of the tapering uh, will they announce? And they're going to wait, obviously, for the August employment report uh, and for the price indices. I mean, they don't have that until three, three, four weeks from now. So we're going to get a lot of information before them, as well as the political developments. Great. And, uh, you know, touching on that, the Fed, we've got the Jackson Hole uh, meeting coming up. Both yep. Janet Yellen and Mario Draghi from the ECB are going to be attending. Any uh, big picture ideas or, or any uh, yeah, you thoughts? Know, on it, the, the, you know, that's uh, the the meetings are always given a lot of press. Honestly, uh, they're very cautious. Um, they don't want to release anything that uh, you know that, that they would not be otherwise. I I'd be very surprised if Janet Yellen gives us any new information that will tilt us one way or the other that we did not already get in the minutes or her own pronouncements. Uh, Draghi might be a little bit forthcoming. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 since Europe has definitely emerged from the doldrums, uh, they're, they're a step behind us. We're talking about reducing our balance sheets. They're talking about stopping expanding their balance sheets. And uh, they are much, uh, uh, and we're both very close to both those goals. Uh, Draghi may actually provide more news for Europe uh, than I expect Yellen to provide for the United States. Well, great. Well, Professor, thank you so much for having, uh, thank you so much for joining us and have a wonderful weekend. Thank you very much. All right. Well, now, uh, also before we welcome our first guest, I'd like to just check in with Jeremy Schwartz uh, to see if he had any big picture thoughts or um, any uh, any high level, um, you know, focus before we get started with the show. Brad, no, thanks uh, for coming down to the studio for us. And really, on a week where all they're talking about is politics and what's happened with Trump and this or that, you couldn't have a better guest with Greg Valliere, who is one of the you know sort of foremost policy side guys. I really look forward to hearing his views on discussion back and forth on what's possible from all these policies coming up and his inside word on Republicans, Democrats, how they might come together. It's going to be a, an interesting view there. Well, great. Well, with that, let's go ahead and welcome Greg Valliere to the program. Uh, Greg is the chief global strategist at Horizon Investments, uh, and, and he's really a remarkably perceptive thinker on all things Federal Reserve, economic policy, and, of course, politics. So, Greg, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, so let's see. Last time you were on the show, it was right around the time of Trump's inauguration. Um, it's been about 210 days of the Trump administration. Um, how have your thoughts necessarily evolved, and, and where do you see us going forward? Well, I think first and foremost, and I think Professor Siegel would agree, you've got still solid earnings, decent GDP, very tame inflation, steady interest rates, good corporate earnings. So those big fundamentals have persisted since Trump's 
inauguration. The problem is, and we began to see it in the markets this week, is that the markets would not be happy if they thought the Trump agenda, very pro-business, pro-tax cut, if they thought the Trump agenda was in real trouble and might die, that's not a good story. And I think with all the dysfunction in his administration, all the chaos in the White House, I think prospects for his agenda have slipped. Now, now one of the questions there, Greg, is, is it the Republican agenda or is it the Trump agenda? Because, you know, the, the Trump's volatility here is not exactly what, what people want here. That's a very good point. And I'm beginning to think, and after talking to my sources on Capitol Hill, that the Republicans, Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan, people like that, they have an agenda they're going to move on. And they're making it clear that they might even consider Trump irrelevant. They may ignore him. They may ignore the tweets and all the crazy stuff from him and move on tax reform, move on budget issues. Uh, and I think they can still get things done. I think, though, the markets don't like the, the spectacle of seeing a White House in this kind of disarray. But I think the markets are just going to have to get used to that. Yeah, so uh, I think one thing that's, that's quite interesting is yesterday you saw the markets sell off on you know, some potential rumors that Gary Cohn would be stepping down yep. from his position. Mm -hmm. um, today, we now have tacit confirmation that Steve Bannon is going to be leaving the White House. You know, really, what do you think this means overall for Trump's legislative agenda? Where does his focus shift from currently? And, and really, how do you handicap what Trump can now get done whenever it seems like there is a bit of a shift, at least internally, towards the more globalist arm of his administration? Yeah, I think with Bannon gone, that removes a lightning rod uh, who perhaps eggs on Trump with some very controversial statements. So I, I think Bannon's departure is a, at the margin a slight positive. But let me be very candid. The problem is not with Steve Bannon. The problem is with Donald Trump on these comments uh, racially tinged after Charlottesville. And I think Trump has to take the hit on that more than, than anyone else. I, I do think Cohn stays. I know Cohn is a... Uh, apparently, he's a very observant Jew, and he has to be tormented by the things that Trump said earlier in the week. I mean, he just, Trump said some really appalling things. But I think uh, Gary Cohn is a good, loyal soldier, and there are two factors here. Number one, you know, he is in the running to be the next Fed chairman, and I think that's important. And number two, I think there are an awful lot of people in the markets who Cohn knows, has dealt with for years, and he doesn't want to let them down. Because I think he knows if he left, the markets would react very poorly. Same with Mnuchin, I might add. So I, I, I think they'll stay. But I think the alliance, maybe Cohn and Mnuchin with people like Ryan and McConnell, I think Trump increasingly is, is going to be out of the picture. And as Jeremy Siegel said earlier, Trump will take whatever he gets. I mean, whatever comes out of Congress, he will sign. So I still, I, I'm getting lonelier and lonelier, but I still think we can get something done this fall. Now, now Siegel um, has believed that it could potentially get done this year. I know one of your pieces talked about we just have unrealistic expectations. Is it possible? I mean, when do you, what, what's the timeline you're hearing? Do you think, you know, we've heard they plan to do it by Thanksgiving. You know, is that realistic? Mm -hmm. where, where do you, where do you stand? Well, first and foremost, and I, I think this is not widely appreciated, We've got some huge budget issues to get through in September. Raising the debt ceiling, could there really be talk of a U.S. default? Maybe. Uh, getting a new budget, could there be talk about a government shutdown? Maybe. Uh, these are big, and you also have to get spending levels done. That may not come until uh, December. So once these huge budget issues are resolved, we'll, already, we'll probably be in mid-October. So the idea that the House and Senate could both pass tax legislation and resolve their differences in a conference committee before New Year's, I think that's really unrealistic. I do think we could get a tax bill done by late winter, early spring. That, I think, is still doable. It won't be as big as what Trump wants. It won't be a top corporate rate going from 35% down to 15%. We, there's not enough money for that. But I think some corporate tax relief, which the markets would love to see, some individual tax cuts, I, I still think that along with some reform, I still think it's doable, but it comes later rather than sooner. 
in on on that end, in terms of the the legislative agenda, in your view, is is infrastructure spending or an infrastructure bill is is that effectively dead uh, in terms of getting something concrete and and passed through uh, both houses of Congress this year? Well, it's on life support, but I'm not going to say it's dead because there's there've been rumors this week, a lot of speculation that maybe the Republicans who are so exasperated with Trump might start talking to the Democrats. They're going to work with the Democrats on raising the debt ceiling. They're going to work with the Democrats on funding uh, health insurers. And they might go to the Democrats and say, look, if you can give us some votes on tax cuts, we will not have these tax cuts favor the rich. They'll favor the middle class. And while we're at it, let's do something on infrastructure. So I I don't totally rule it out. You know, I I think that Chuck Schumer, who deep down in would love to do an infrastructure bill, knows that the base in his own party would be very, very angry if they thought he was dealing with the Trump administration or the Republicans. So the odds are against it, but the odds aren't zero. I mean, there is a chance we could see a little something on infrastructure. The, The more likely bet is that infrastructure really doesn't move until a year from now. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Greg Valier, Horizon's chief global strategist on politics, um, and really, you know, he's a he's a real thought leader on this subject. It's it's interesting, Greg. I mean, I remember thinking when when Trump got elected, you know, his his natural inkling isn't the traditional Republican side. In some ways, he's been more Democratic historically, and so you you sort of wondered if he would become yep. this deal maker, a bipartisan come together. And perhaps, you know, maybe that sentiment was wrong, but perhaps just the animosity towards Trump from both sides, Republican and Democrat, might get this bipartisanship that we haven't seen in Washington really in a long time. Is that, is, is that hate for Trump possible that, to bring people together? <laughs> How's that for irony? He finally united the country against him. And yes. he finally uh, united Congress against him. So, yes, that's a very good point. I think that... Uh, not all Republicans, but some are uh, looking forward to doing some work with the Democrats. I think that's something you can't uh, you can't rule out. But as I said earlier, I think the the base in the Democratic Party is going through its own civil war. It's been overshadowed by all the theatrics this week with Bannon gone and all this stuff. But within the Democratic Party, there's a real split. You've got the moderates, and then you've got the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren wing, which want a litmus test. Uh, They want all candidates running for office in 2018 to pledge they'll support a single-payer health insurance plan. I know the left likes it, but I don't think the votes are there to get it. And if Trump is still around, I think he'd veto it. Certainly Mike Pence would veto it. So there there are limits to how much you can get done between the two parties. But as I said, aid to insurers, maybe something on taxes, uh, maybe a little more spending. I think the Democrats might get more spending than uh, President Trump would like to see. So there are some areas where the Democrats and Republicans might find some common ground. Uh, on this debt ceiling issue, which is really a silly issue that we, we even have to make this come, yeah. to, come to every year, I mean, the, the standard, I think, market narrative is, you know, that they're just going to put it off until the very last hour. They're going to make a big you know, pop and circus uh, circumstance thing of it, and then it'll at the end of the day they'll they'll sort of increase it at the last minute because who do the Republicans have to blame but themselves for not for not doing it? Um, is there any? You think there's really a, any real probability that that doesn't happen? Well, I, the, the safer bet is that we'll get an, uh, a debt ceiling increase at the very last minute after everyone wrings their hands over a possible default. But that's not a 100% bet. I mean, it's yeah. it's possible that we could have, uh, uh, for a few days, some real chaos for the fixed income market with concern about U.S. debt defaulting. I, I'm reluctant to predict a, any protracted crisis, but things are so unpredictable and fluid right now in Washington that you could have a, a, for a few days, a debt default, and you could have for a few days a government shutdown. So, Greg, um, you know, there's been a lot made about the winding down of effectively all of the president's advisory councils. You, you saw the infrastructure can, uh, uh, council effectively preemptively canceled um, yesterday. You know, how much of that is is more or less politics and how much of that is substance? You know, who who can the president really, you know, solicit input from and, and, and come up with, you know, plans that, that the business leaders of America ultimately want to see passed? 
you know, you make a good point, and I do think that this will be remembered for many things this crazy week. But one of the things it will be remembered for is the week that Trump lost corporate America. That's that's some serious stuff to lose corporate America. I think an awful lot of these CEOs were facing a boycott. If they stayed on these councils, I think it would be an effort to boycott these companies. They had to step down. The publicity would have been withering had they stayed on to work with someone who said such horrible things uh, earlier in the week after he, he doubled down on, on Charlottesville. So I, I think the relations between the president and corporate America have taken a big hit. Even with Steve Schwartzman, who I think got bagged in, as they tried to extract themselves from uh, the, the White House counsels. So there, there's a lot of bad blood right now. A lot of, And I think Trump may reciprocate by increasing his populist rhetoric like he has uh, on drug prices. So uh, all of a sudden, this president and business uh, have some fractures. All of a sudden, there's more speculation about who leaves the White House. Could Kelly go? And all of a sudden, you've got Republicans on the Hill in huge numbers defecting away from him. This has been quite a week. Craig, it's hard to remember that the start of the week was all about North Korea and you know, you had Bannon in the news really saying, you know, the Koreans got us because yeah. there's no scenario that, that 10 million people don't die within 30 minutes of attacking Korea. Um, I mean, and there's some fundamental truth to that. I mean, what, what do you think, how does that whole situation resolve if there is a resolution? I mean, what's your view of what our strategy is for North Korea and, and what, yeah. what, what's at play there? Well, we're not out of the woods yet. And really, isn't that incredible? North Korea has been pushed to the sidelines this week. There's been so much other crazy stuff. But North Korea is still a very serious issue because the U.S. and South Korea are about to begin 10 days of military exercises, which probably would be viewed as provocative by the North. I'm sure there'll be more saber-rattling in the next week or so. The U.S. Pentagon has plans drawn up. For strategic strikes. I think most all the generals do not want a war. They most definitely don't want to see a war, but you can't rule it out. And with Trump being so erratic lately, maybe wanting to change the subject from dysfunction in his own White House, you have to say there is a chance this story could heat up again dramatically. So we've spent a lot of the conversation primarily focused on politics. Uh, obviously, I think another big driver from what we see, you know, in terms of market reaction throughout the end of the year, it's going to be very much focused on global monetary policy. You know, do you have a yep. sense of, of what the Fed is necessarily thinking? Um, you know, what is your base case in terms of changes that we see from the central bank heading into the end of this year? And, and ultimately, what does that mean for markets? Well, still another story that's changed. I agree with the professor. I think a, a rate hike, obviously, in September is not going to occur. I think they have to begin tentatively winding down the balance sheet. They've telegraphed that so explicitly. I can't see them uh, backing away on that. But I think all of a sudden now, another rate hike this year is uh, hardly certain. You know, Maybe we get to December and they decide to do one more move, a 25 basis point move. But how do you do that with an economy that's still just moderate and with no inflation that has gotten to the Fed's target? So that's, that's part of the good story. The, uh, the Fed going slow, rates staying steady, no inflation, moderate growth. I mean, all the economic fundamentals are good. It's just Washington that's given everybody a migraine right now. So one of the other, I guess, primary stories of the year, and maybe it's related to politics, maybe it's related to monetary policy, but it's been, you know, the the fairly sizable decline in the value of the U.S. dollar versus, you know, pretty much yeah. every foreign currency. You know, how do you see that playing out? We've, we've obviously been in a dollar bull cycle for the last, call it, five or six years. Maybe that trend has largely paused over the last, you know, year or so. You know, what, what role do you think the dollar is ultimately playing in the global economy? And kind of how do you see these um, push-pull dynamics ultimately playing out? Well, my wife and I are in Europe quite a bit, and we like to see a strong dollar, needless to say. And I think you've got to say the big story in Western Europe is uh, signs that the, the radical populist movement has faded. You know, I think Marcon obviously is the big story, and I think Angela Merkel will do well next month in the election. So, you know, the dollar's weakness is justified because the Fed is 
going real slow on rate hikes. Going forward, I, I think this is actually a positive story because U.S. multinationals, which were being hit by a strong dollar, are now benefiting uh, from a weak dollar. So I think for the U.S. economy and the U.S. stock market, it's not a bad story uh, at, at all. And I think these uh, fundamentals may persist for a while as the European economy starts to pick up, as European monetary accommodation begins to fade. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, you brought that up. So dollar weakness is, is also translating into euro strength. You know, is it now that the market yeah. is starting to focus on, you know, some of the potential headwinds of a stronger euro, particularly on a lot of these, you know, large multinationals that are headquartered in Europe that, that do sell abroad? We'll see. I mean, my, I'm, I'm not an expert on the forex market, but I, I, as an observer, I would just say that uh, it sure looks to me as if the forex market always overshoots to the upside or a downside. You see a trend start, and they overshoot. So that could be occurring now if the dollar breaks through 120, for example, against the euro. I, I think that could start to create some anxiety. I think for right now, we're still pretty much in a sweet spot. Well, Greg, uh, unfortunately, we unfortunately we're out of time but thank you again so much for joining us today great fun enjoyed it thanks and stay tuned everyone after the break we'll be talking to another returning guest jared dillian i'm bradley crom and you're listening to behind the markets on sirius xm 111 i'm your host bradley crom and i've got jeremy schwartz your regular host on the phone with me uh joining us now is jared dillian he's an investment strategist at malden economics and editor of the daily dirt nap a market newsletter for investment professionals jared welcome back to the program Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, you heard the discussion that we had in in the previous segment with Greg Valliere. You know, what do you what where do you where do you agree? Where do you necessarily disagree? You know, do we think we have the overall conversation correct as it relates to the very politically charged environment that we find ourselves in today? Uh, I apologize. I didn't hear the original discussion. Can you just sure a few yeah. bars for me? Yeah. So, so I guess markets sold off globally yesterday. Um, there were some rumors that Gary Cohn was going to be stepping down um, as the president's chief economic advisor. Um, today, we get confirmation that Steve Bannon is uh, his last day in the White House will be today. Um, markets appear to be roughly flat, but but hopefully, it seems like the market is is looking for Trump to focus more on um, you know getting policy done as opposed to um, appeasing the the largely nationalist wing um, of his supporters. So so largely, we're we're just trying to understand you know what this means in terms of his ability to get policy done. And, and where markets might react to that going forward. Yeah, I think I, mean, I think today is a very different day than yesterday. I mean, yesterday we were sort of staring down the barrel of Gary Cohn leaving the administration, and then you start to look at who are the who are the really good people in this administration. It's Steve Mnuchin, it's Kelly, it's McMaster, it's Wilbur Ross, um, and if you have an exodus of these people who appear to be a stabilizing force, um, then you're looking at the next possibly three years of the administration hiring people who are not as stabilizing. And that was, I mean, you know, even though uh, Gary Cohn yesterday said that he was going to stay on, that fear is what sent the market down a couple of standard deviations. Uh, And just today, the news that Bannon is going to be leaving um, is gives gives us a whole different tone than what we had yesterday. Sure, and so um, you know, one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting, um, you know, you recently wrote that you see about a thirty percent chance of tax reform getting done uh, this year. You know, how do, how do how did you kind of come to that number, and, and what are the the dominant factors that are that are influencing that view? Well, also keep in mind if it if it doesn't get done this year, then you're kind of up against midterms. And it probably doesn't get done at all, um, which is, you know, a pretty pretty scary thought. Um, you know, the one thing we're looking at here is, uh, I mean, really, we're just down to one thing. It's a it's a corporate rate reduction from 35 percent to 15 or 20 percent uh, repatriation of income. Everybody knows how stimulative that could be. Um, the 30 percent number, I think. You know, I probably started with 70 percent three or four months ago, and it's been going down ever since then. And it just really comes down to um, the effectiveness of 
the Trump administration uh, to pass laws. And as you know, as time has gone on, we've seen that effectiveness diminish. So um, you know, a lot of people we're still very early into his first term, and a lot of people are reflecting that this could be a do-nothing sort of presidency because he doesn't have the ability to get people together and pass laws. Hey, hey Jared, Jeremy Schwartz here calling hey. in from Amsterdam. Thanks for joining back with us here. Hey, thank you. Um, you know, so, I mean, I know uh, here I'm spending some euros. I'm definitely going to want to get your take on the euro in, in a few minutes. Um, but, you know, one of the themes I know you've been writing about is just general market levels and market volatility, and we've got some of that volatility back this week. Um, but when you think about, you know, how much of your case on bearish, or if you are bearish the U.S. markets generally, is it just from Trump not getting anything done, from just things were overextended? I mean, what maybe sort of talk about volatility levels in the market? Sure. So um, I published a, uh, a table a couple of days ago on the Daily Dirt Nap, and it was a table of the number of 1% moves in the market going back over time, and 1% up moves and 1% down moves. And if you look at it, any given year in the last 20 years, there was, on average, sometimes more, um, 20 to 30 one percent moves down and twenty to thirty one percent moves up um, and this year in 2017 up and up until a couple of days ago we had three one percent down moves and three one percent up moves I mean just the the biggest statistical outlier imaginable um, and the degree to which volatility has been compressed is really nothing like we've ever seen uh, so there's a whole discussion on, um, you know, short ball strategies that we could talk about. Um, but this trade, which has continued, um, you know, for the last year or two, uh, continues to attract sponsorship because the sharp ratio of some of these strategies is very high. If you sell implied volatility in the S&P at 7 or 8 and it realizes 1 or 2, that is a very high sharp ratio. I mean, there's actually there's a mutual fund that all it does is short one month front variance and roll it. Um, you know, this is not the type of thing you usually see at market bottoms. Yeah, no, that vault that vault low vault trade is absolutely something that's amazing right now. Um, when when you think about the major other stories of the market, um, that you know, we talked a little bit about the the start of the last segment on, on the euro, and, and I know you've been writing about the euro as one of your themes. The last time we talked about France and how you were along the euro. What's your current state? Do you think the euro is still appreciating on a longer-term trend? Well, first of all, I just, you know, European equities, and not necessarily fixed income, because European bonds are really, really overpriced because of QE, right? Um, people just observed recently that uh, the yields on European high yield is now in line with U.S. Treasuries. It's insane. But European equities have underperformed U.S. equities for the last five years pretty handily. Um, and I think that underperformance is over. Um, and I think you're going to see, you know, basically one of the things I learned when I was a trader at Lehman Brothers was that flows in equity markets are really dictated by currency moves. And if you remember, you know, back when I was at Lehman 10 years ago, uh, 05, 06, 07, 08, the dollar was very, very weak. And, you know, we had a European sales desk in New York, and they really didn't have anything to do because their European clients just felt that the U.S. market was uninvestable because the dollar was so weak. I mean, keep in mind that most international investors are not currency hedged, right? They just take the currency risk. So... I mean, if you're, a, if you're a European investor in 2007 and uh, U.S. stocks are up 20%, but the currency is down 20%, you're, you, you made nothing. Um, so what I'm saying is is that now that we have some euro strength and it's gone from 104, 105 up to 117, 118, and if that strength persists, then you're going to see some flows into European equities. And that's already happened. We saw, we saw some flows a couple months ago, some pretty heavy flows into Europe um, after the French elections, and I think that's going to continue.
It's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I might push back a little bit on the idea that nobody's currency hedged. I mean, I remember I was doing a lot of travel to Europe in, in 2008 and talking to the pensions institutional funds. And actually, one of the things that got me to focus on currency hedging at Wisdom Tree back in 2009 was, you know, we would talk to the pension funds and they'd say when they invest in the U.S., they actually don't take the dollar risk, that they actually just hedge dollars. Their liabilities are, say, in Swedish krona or, or you know, whatever. And so they I, I think it's actually more common in Europe to hedge the U.S. dollar than it is in the U.S. to hedge the foreign currencies. Um, and it's one of the things that got us focusing on that. Um, but now, actually, when you look at somebody like da- the DAX, in the last two to three months, the DAX has somewhat developed a negative correlation like Japan has today, where now as the euro has been rising, the DAX has been selling off the last few months. Not saying all of European markets might trade like that, but certainly some of them are starting to do that. Yeah, and if you're, and I've noticed that too. But if if you're if you're investing in dollars, you actually really haven't noticed. Yeah. Because the euro has a, has appreciated quite a bit. Um, you know, I have, you know, European investments, and you know, I've I've noticed that equity markets have corrected a little bit, but the currency has strengthened. So net net, you know, it's I'm fine. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Um, now, one of the things maybe contributing to volatility and, and sort of going back to sort of the, the U.S. And, and general take on on the the potential coming of volatility. One of the things maybe suppressing some of the volatility is just the flows to passive investing. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your your general take on passive versus versus active? Sure. Um, I, you know, I mean, this is this is obviously like the number one topic in finance right now, and it, it, it's a tough one because. Uh, Nobody, nobody, I, including myself, I, nobody really understands what's going on here. But I made the statement on Twitter the other day that um, if you randomly picked 10 stocks uh, and invested in them, you were probably better diversified than you, if you invested in an S&P 500 index fund, which is a crazy thing to say because an S&P 500 index fund has 500 stocks. And if you have 500 stocks, you're more diversified. Um, now, going back to the 90s, I mean, when you know, when I was in my early 20s and I first started to invest, I actually invested in the S&P 500 index fund, and um, I uh, um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, that was the way that index funds were being pitched back in the 90s were for diversification. Like, hey, instead of picking five or ten stocks, you can just invest in this fund and you get diversification across 500 stocks. You get these diversification benefits. But if you look at how index funds are being pitched today, that is not how they're being pitched at all. Um, Nobody talks about diversification benefits, and I don't think anybody even really thinks about that. So when you have, you know, 20 million people in the country plowing billions and billions of dollars into index funds every year, we don't know what that's going to look like if those flows reverse, right? So if we've been driving correlations and driving volatility lower on the way in, what happens when it comes out? And I don't think, I don't think these flows are necessarily one way. If the market were to correct about 15 or 20%, you would start to see these flows reverse. And it could become a self-reinforcing process. Yeah, let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Jared Dillian, editor of the Daily Dirt Nap. Writes a lot of great market commentary for there, also for the Malden side. Uh, writes the Tenth Man um, letter for him. Um, and, and Jared, maybe talk a little bit. We're, I know we're, you're planning a conference coming up in Myrtle Beach. It's something I'm heading down there, and we're going to have some of these conversations. We'll continue this exact conversation on active versus passive a little bit down there. Um, you know, the, do you want to say anything about that before we, we continue that conversation? Sure. This conference is uh, the Daily Dirt Nap Conference is the first time uh, I've held it. It's going to be here in Pauley's Island, uh, South Carolina, at the Litchfield Beach and Golf Resort. And it's going to be an intimate conference. I think we're going to have about 70 or 80 people. And, I mean, I can certainly tell you that Myrtle Beach has never seen anything like this before. <laughs> so, I'm looking forward to it. Well, we're going to have uh, – I mean, some of the speakers we have, they're not speakers really off the speaker circuit, um, but these are people who manage money and move markets on a daily basis. 
Um, and we're going to be talking. We, we, you know, we have a speaker on frontier markets. We have a speaker on G10FX. We have a speaker all about volatility. Uh, you and I are going to debate passive versus active. I mean, this is it's going to be really good, and, and it's uh, October 19th and 20th um, in Pauly's Island. Yeah, so anybody wants to come hear Jared's crew talk about all these different issues, I think it'd be, be a great, great place to come down to. Um, you know, on this idea that passive is driving correlations, um, it's sort of interesting. I, mean, I was looking, I, I've, I've heard this, this general discussion that all the, the flows to passive and all the flows to ETFs are going to just increase the correlation to the market. And what's, what's fascinating is there's some cross-correlation charts that I've seen that correlation has generally been declining across the market. It goes, sort of goes counter to that story that all flows are driving correlations to one. I'll have to send you that chart. It's sort of interesting just that the correlations aren't quite there in the market. And maybe, you know, now is this, you know, the idea of correlations declining is now the time for active managers to come back and, and add some value. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think that, you know, I think a lot of things. I think that, um, you know, if you, if you are an active manager, and let's say not just an active manager, let's say you're a hedge fund manager, you're a, a long, short guy. And uh, you're you're one of the smartest of the smart. You're the you know the smartest um, top. You're in the top you know five basis points of investors, and um, you are really really good at picking stocks, picking winners and losers. Um, but the problem is is that the flows, um, you know, the flows are driving everything. And if you have money going into 500 stocks, 500 stocks. Are going to go up, and it's market cap weighted, so you know the biggest ones are going to go up the most. So, it's you know if you look at you know the whole Fang phenomenon and stuff like that, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is is that I think that passive investing has made really smart money money managers look really dumb in the last couple of years, and I don't think they, it's because they've collectively gotten dumber. I think the environment has changed on them, and they have yet to adapt to it. Um, so either the environment will change back or they'll figure out how to adapt to it. I mean, one of the big pictures that I hear, and this is somewhat from some readings either from Jesse Livermore, the philosophical uh, economics blogger, and then also conversations with Vanguard and hearing some of the way they present active versus passive. You know, maybe 50 years ago you had 80% of the trading were done by individual investors, and you could have these professionals who 50 years ago could take advantage of say, the uninformed mom-and-pop trading the individual stocks, who are sort of less-informed traders, call them. Um, and now, when you look at where the trading and, and money management is, 99% is essentially institutionally managed, yeah. whether it's in passive, whether it's mutual fund managers, very little mom-and-pop buying and selling individual stocks. So then the question is, you know, there's call it 40%, who knows the exact percentage, but 40% that's indexed to the market, and then you have 60% quote-unquote active. For every winner, there's got to be a loser. It's just mathematically true. And keep in mind that you know, active includes quant. So yeah. you know, if 40% of it is passive, then basically you have the quants fighting the active guys for the rest. And so there will be some smart quants and some dumb quants that, <laughs> that underperform, right? I mean, you've got to figure out who's going to win for I – mean, in aggregate, they can't quote-unquote win. Yeah, I actually I saw an article recently. I can't remember where I saw it, but there was an article about how quant managers are actually starting to struggle simply because there is not enough dumb money in the market, and it's it's pro versus pro, it's spy versus spy. You know, that's interesting. So, Jared, I wanted to jump in here, and you know, you talked a lot about flows impacting your views of Europe. Another place that we've seen fairly dramatic flows year to date has been into emerging markets. You know, what are, what are your general thoughts? Are there markets that you favor over others uh, as it relates to EM? Or, or really, where do you see, um, you know, opportunities uh, outside of developed markets? Well, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, EM has actually been in a bull market since January of 2016. January of 2016 was the low, the panic low uh, in EM. Um, and... Uh, now it's actually EM has performed so well this year that it's turned into a momentum trade. Um, you know, you're looking at some of these EM funds that are up like you know 10, 15, 20 percent year to date. They're having phenomenal years. Um, I think EM, you know, 
I, I, I refuse to generalize about EM in the way that some people do. I mean, you could generalize about EM in 2004 and say, you know, we have the bricks and they all trade like a marching band, but EM does, is not really like that these days. Um, I think India is an amazing story um, and will continue to be for a long time. Um, Turkey, I think, is, you know, has benefited from some of the flows, uh, but that's 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 a trade, not an investment, um, because I think Erdogan will, you know, he'll do himself in eventually. Um, so it, it's, you know, I think you have to kind of go, go country by country, but, yeah, I mean, it's the one thing that's worked this year, and it's actually turned into a momentum trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, the, are you are you already saying that, you know, your views on emerging markets are, are largely focused on, you know, the leaders there. So you've got Prime Minister Modi doing, um, you know, fairly revolutionary things um, in India, um, maybe less, uh, you know, tolerant of, of Prime Minister Erdogan, or I guess now President Erdogan um, in Turkey. You know, what what are really the key catalysts that you're looking at, you know, if you're if you're looking to make an investment in India? Um, not so much India specifically, but if you just if you think about the asset class, um, it, you know, emerging markets had ten years of underperformance against developed markets. Okay, and if you go back to you know uh, years ago um, when the Reinhardt and Rogoff book was written, uh, this time is different, which talked all about debt. This was written. This was came out about the time of Greece. And it talked about um, sovereign debt uh, and basically forward returns with large amounts of debt. I mean, if you go around the world and you look at developed countries, the U.S. has 100% debt to GDP. Italy has 170% debt to GDP. Japan is 240. Um, really unsustainable levels around the world. And if you look at the places that have favorable demographics, and favorable debt and more stable government, then it's emerging. Um, and I think that that trade has just been out of favor for a long time, and now it's in favor, and it'll continue to be in favor. So just want to introduce a quick reset here. I'm Bradley Crone, along with Jeremy Schwartz, and you're listening to Behind the Markets. Uh, we've got Jared Dillian on the phone for this half hour. He is uh, investment strategist at Malden Economics and uh, an editor for the Daily Dirt Nap, a market newsletter for investment professionals. Um, so, Jared, we've really gone a- around the world in terms of looking for opportunities. You know, maybe we bring it back to the U.S. and and think about you know what are some of the key catalysts that maybe you're looking for uh, in terms of where we go um, from an overall market level heading into uh, to the end of, of 2017. Well, I think that um, the Fed's balance balance sheet reduction is going to be super important and um you know the funny thing is is that we're used to certainty out of the fed i mean for the last couple years we knew in advance like going into a calendar year we would get three rate hikes and guess what we got three rate hikes it's been the most predictable fed that we've ever had and now in september we're going to start balance sheet reduction and we're going to start with 6 billion a month and it's going to increase over time but it's sort of subject to how the market takes it and it's really a big unknown and maybe we hike rates in December but we don't know so we're sort of entering this period of like uh monetary policy uncertainty uh and you also have to look at the fact that the Fed you know they're they're chicken hawks right so um, you know, at the first sign of trouble in the market, they reserve the right to cut back or eliminate the balance sheet reduction. Um, so it's just my point is we're just you know we're monetary policy wise we're entering a period of great uncertainty. And I I don't even really have any predictions myself. Yeah, it's not really policy uncertainty because you know it's pretty certain that they coddle the market that the market starts freaking out they step back. Um, so you sort of know their reaction function in a way, and it's it'll be well at least the current Fed. It'll be interesting to see who Trump puts in there as the uh, the head of the Fed. Well, you know, I think Gary Cohn would be an excellent choice. Uh, I think Kevin Warsh would also be an excellent choice. There's a there's actually now that I think of it, um, they could pick a lot of good. I mean, even Larry Kudlow would be good, like a real supply sider. Uh, at the Fed. I don't think they'll pick him, but, you know, he's definitely on the list. Um, so, 
I think as as long as they stay, stick to the list, <laughs> right. I think as long as they stick to the list, uh, we'll be okay. And it's like I said, it's a pretty good list. Right. Um, you know, one of the things, as as you think about, it, if if we do get a bigger sign of volatility in the market, um, as you as we talked about at the beginning, you you start looking at alternatives, alternative assets, and this year, you know. The, there's been the big story has been the huge rush. You say one percent moves. We're getting you know massive moves in, in sort of this new currency, the Bitcoin. Um, what do you think about what's going on there? What do you think about old alternative currencies like gold? Is that something you look at for a no? That's in the market. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. So um, you know, one thing I postulated the other day was you know where do you think the price of gold would be? if there were no such thing as cryptocurrencies, there was no Bitcoin. And one of the things I remember, so I, you know, I've, I've been a gold investor since 2005 and uh, I got really interested in it, especially with buying like physical gold and silver in 2010, 2011, right when everybody else did, I was like, you know, it, we had this national preoccupation with precious metals in 2010 and 2011. You remember all the cash for gold stores and stuff like that. All anybody could talk about was gold. People were going on these websites, you know, buying physical metals. Um, it was a preoccupation. It was an obsession. And nobody does that anymore. And I actually, I, you know, generally the public is net buyers of physical, and they've actually turned to be net sellers, which is like the first time this has ever happened. And now the preoccupation is with cryptocurrencies. I mean that's 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 the alternative asset class, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, just with all the you know the ICOs and the madness and you know people throwing Bitcoin parties, like it's it's you know it's it's a, it's a very small version of 1999, just in this little asset class, which is not so little anymore. It's you know it's over a hundred billion uh, market cap. Um, so I mean, look, like I. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue the merits of Bitcoin with people. I just when when I talk to the Bitcoin people, I just say, look, I'm like, this smells, walks, acts, talks like a bubble. All you people are behaving as if you're investing in a bubble, and I just leave it at that. Yeah, the, my anecdote on that is just increasing every day, and with new people saying, yeah, I know it's a bubble. I'm gonna put ten thousand dollars. Is it gonna be worth ten million dollars or worth nothing? And that's you know, increasingly the mindset you hear that people just say it's another lottery ticket and they don't really care. That's a, it does seem to point in that direction. I, by the way, I think that owning a little bit of gold is a terrific put option on Bitcoin because, if, you know, if Bitcoin were, were ever to have some kind of technical problem or an exchange gets hacked or something like that and the price goes down 50, 60, 80 percent, that a lot of that money is going to go into gold. So. Yeah. Well, great. Well, Jared, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. I'd also like to thank our first guest, Greg Valliere of Horizon Investments. And thanks also to our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Jeremy Schwartz, have a fantastic uh, trip uh, to Europe, and we will speak with you next week. Have a good day. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.